This is the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. How about my parents with a foresight have given me that middle name? Comes in handy sometimes. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Man, that music was cool, but kind of made me tired. Maybe I should have gone with something a bit more upbeat. Either way, I love the story of Thomas And we're going to tap into the spirit of that story today of being kind of in the middle of trying to figure out what we believe, but still having the freedom to give ourselves grace and to give others grace in the middle of all of it and to try to invite love, even when we feel maybe untethered from that larger group that has been telling us our whole lives what we're supposed to believe and what we're supposed to think. And by the way, I think that larger group, for the most part, is well-intended But as it's turning out for me and a lot of folks, it's not been very healthy. So I respect the fact that it's it's probably well-intended, but the truth is there are better and healthier ways to approach life. But before we get to more of that, I want to welcome you back. This is episode number six. As I mentioned, we're going to talk a bit about doubt and freedom today. Hey, if you haven't had a chance yet, you can scroll down, even while you're listening to this podcast, if you're on your phone, you just scroll down and give the episode or the whole podcast some reviews and some stars. That'd be helpful. Now, depending on the platform you're listening to this on, you may have to hit a heart or click like or a thumbs up or a follow. You know, everyone's a little bit different, but I certainly appreciate um, the help with that. I encourage you to find me online. Um, JonathanFosterOnline.com is the blog site. And you can certainly look me up on Facebook and on Twitter and also on Amazon. I have a couple books out. I have a new one coming out, as many of you know. And I had hoped it would be out maybe by this week. But there's so many details, man, to pull together, especially when you're a one-man show, which is basically what I am. So I'm working on it. 
and it'll be worth the wait. Well, at least I hope it'll be worth the wait for you. I know it's been good for me. Hey, also, uh, if you have time, check out lqve.org. That's love spelled with a Q. That's the thing that uh, my boy and I get to uh, run. He probably doesn't like it when I say my boy, but he is, and he's a cool kid. So, um, and we're really proud to be a part of uh, that relationship with a group of people in Haiti. And so, um, I hope you'll check that out when you have time. So today we're talking about love and hope and faith and deconstruction and basically how to keep your crap together when it feels like you're becoming untethered from the larger group that has always told you what to believe and how to think. And to be clear, I say parenthetically, I think most of the time the larger group is well intended. So it's not like it would be really healthy for you to pin all of your problems on them. That would be a type of scapegoating that uh, would not be healthy or helpful. But but the truth is, you do have to pull away from the circle of influence in order to figure out what it is that you believe. And when you're untethered, well, it can be a little uh, discombobulating, maybe. I know when I finally committed to not only believing, but also then writing about it and saying out loud with my words that that I believed in nonviolent atonement, that is that Jesus didn't have to die because God required him to do so as a sin offering, but rather he died because he was revealing God's heart of love, which really slowly and in some ways rapidly, but it changed everything for me. When I started saying that out loud, (laughs) I definitely became untethered from the mothership of Americanized Christianity. And there were a lot of days in that process where I was just unsure of exactly, you know, of my footing and where it was going. So if you're feeling that way, I just want you to know it's a pretty normal feeling. And these things take a while. I mean, it took me, it took me several years and a lot of thinking and praying and reading to kind of get to where I'm arriving at now. And I haven't arrived yet. But the goal is to get somewhere. You know, the goal is to reconstruct. It's not to just deconstruct. You know, deconstruction is highly flammable, but the goal isn't to just burn everything down. It's to find, it's to move to a new uh, place. Maybe a better metaphor is thinking in terms of remodeling. So the goal is to not tear the whole building down, but to remodel. And you know, when you remodel, you sometimes pull up the carpet and you discover the beautiful oak floors that had been there all along. Or maybe you pull off the wallpaper and you find out that there's this really rich painting or something underneath. A friend of mine owns some co-working spaces here in Kansas City, and they were redoing an old school a few years ago. It was a school that had been abandoned. And as they were redoing one of the rooms, they I can't remember if they pulled the wallpaper off or scraped the paint or whatever, but underneath were these beautiful uh, life-size-like murals that cover the entire room and it was something apparently if i remember the story right like basically everyone had forgotten about and so the city got involved because they were excited and uh, it's fun to rediscover something that's been there all along and i think the movement for a lot of us is similar to that in our faith in that 
you know, we're not trying to throw everything away. We're just trying to recapture something of that beautiful, rich faith that has always been there. Somehow it just got covered up with the wallpaper and the carpet. But, you know, nonviolent, non-sacrificial atonement, that's something that the early church believed and taught for hundreds of years. I mean, think about that. For at least three or four hundred years, well, probably four thousand years, no one had ever even considered something like what we think of when we commonly think of the gospel today, which is that Jesus, you know, had to die in order to get God to get God's attention enough to love us. And I'm over uh, caricaturizing that a bit, but in trying to make a point, the point is there's been this rich faith there all along, and what we're trying to do is to to recapture that. And in the middle of it, things are kind of messy, and it feels, again, like you're untethered, and uh, it's a bit confusing. But I take encouragement from a story like Doubting Thomas that we read earlier. Because did you notice that a few days, maybe it was a week, I don't remember, that a week went by between the event of Jesus showing up and Tom not being there that first time, and then the next time when Jesus showed up and Tom was there? Imagine Thomas that entire week, showing up every day, hanging out with the other believers. Imagine the doubts that he brought to them. And yet, what I love is he he didn't give up. But also I love the fact that the community welcomed him back. It's almost as if they were encouraging him and saying to him, it's okay that you have doubts. You still belong here. And I think that's a picture of what the church could be. You don't believe? It's cool. You belong anyhow, because you're a human. And we know that you have dreams and aspirations. So just keep showing up. Bring your doubts and everything and just keep showing up. So Thomas did, and eventually it, so to speak, paid off for him. And it will, so to speak, pay off for you too at some point. But it's not easy to do. I mean, it's not easy to do when others around you are worried about your soul going to hell for not believing that God needs bloodshed in order to forgive. Or, or how about this one? It's not easy to do when others around you are worried about you going to hell because you don't believe in a literal hell. How ironic is that? Because you don't believe in a literal flesh-burning hell, you're going to hell. <laughs> and I'm not laughing. I'm really not laughing to be disrespectful. I'm laughing at how preposterous it all can start sounding, especially that part about hell. I hear that. Gosh, I hear so many Christians talk about hell. You know, it just it's hell in the way that it's always been presented to me is now completely incompatible with my view of God through his son, Jesus. I mean, how is it that Jesus says we're supposed to love our enemies, but in the end, God doesn't have to love his enemies because in the end, if you're an enemy of God, you know, you get burned and fried. Like, I want in on some of that action. I got some people I'd like to know. I'm trying to point out the inconsistency of it all. And it's really absurd that so many people get freaked out when you just try to introduce some, some thoughts and some questions But I get it. I get it because not only have I been there, but I also get in a bigger sense that this is how people have created meaning. And so it's it's difficult then for them to, you know, think about it a different way. But when you start to push back, you know, and ask why, like, why are they concerned about you believing in a nonviolent sacrificial love? Most people really can't articulate why. All they really know is that it's just different than what they were taught. 
And again, they've created meaning from what they were taught. To introduce questions into their meaning, well, it invites doubt to creep in. And doubt freaks us out. Because we want to have things clear. We want to have things in black and white. All of us do, myself included. So if we're not careful, we always wind up making this whole thing about certainty and the rock of faith and um, the certitude that we can have. But if you had no uncertainty, there would literally be no reason for faith. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is control. And whatever love is, it's not controlling. We've painted this picture in our culture, like, I know you've heard this too, like, we'll describe someone, oh, there's such a man of faith, or there's such a woman of faith, as if they have it all together, as if all their prayers get answered, as if all the dots are connected. I think we actually have it backwards. I think a person of faith is someone who honestly admits that they don't have their dots connected. I know I've got a few dots that need to be connected. And so you employ faith to get through life. And you might say, well, yeah, but what about the solid rock of faith that we can have in Jesus? My hope is built on nothing less. And yes, I would say it is a rock. But it's a different kind of rock than we thought. It turns out it's a rock that smashes our theology and makes way for a new, healthier theology of love that's not controlling. So this is dedicated to all the young people. This is going out to all the young people out there who are feeling a commitment to love that transcends the binary exclusive in-out thinking that's been demonstrated in most of our churches. But to be honest, they're also feeling a little unsure of themselves because within their family or within their friend group or their larger circle of influence, they're in the minority. Can you relate to that? Like you get the phone call from a loved one or the friend, or the former mentor, whoever. And they say something like, well, I've been hearing about some of the things you and your group have been claiming and preaching, and I'm concerned where this is all going. And you think, oh boy, here we go. And you try to beat them to the punch, and you say, hey man, thank you so much for calling. I know, it's really wild, isn't it? I feel like, you know, the group I'm a part of is living on the edge. There's so much freedom, it's so much fun. Like, we're learning the goal of this whole thing is love. You know, and you, you, try to, you try to reference someone like Thomas. Have you read about Thomas? Do you remember about Thomas and his doubt? Like, I just think it's so great. A group that admitted him even though he didn't believe. And, and I'm a part of a place that admits that confidence sometimes is super overrated and maybe even detrimental. You know, you hear them hem and haw on the other end of the phone line. And then they'll, they'll say something like, well, we've got to be confident about some things. And if we're not confident in God, it's going to lead to problems. And you're like, but isn't it interesting that even though Thomas said he wasn't going to believe that he still kept showing up? And isn't this metaphorical of us all? Like, don't we all have doubts? But the point isn't to give up. And they don't really go for what you're saying. 
and eventually they start talking about rules and fears and punishment because God God bless the religious people. I mean, honestly, God bless them because where would this country have gotten to without them? But as sure as the day is long, they're going to bring up rules and fear and punishment. And so you take a big breath and you smile. You smile even on the phone because you've learned that the very act of breathing and smiling releases endorphins. And you know you're going to need some endorphins for this conversation. And you say, man, I totally get it. I've got fears too. I kept thinking that Jesus would take away all those fears, but nope. Not really. Sometimes I have great days, like Thomas when he believed, and I have faith. And other times, I don't have great days, like Thomas when he didn't believe and didn't seem to have faith. Like I just don't know. But you know what? I've decided I'm not focusing on the fear. And here's where you don't like preach at them. You try to make it about yourself and hope that they latch on, you know? You say something like, I remember when I used to be driven by fear so much that I talked about fear and wanted others to feel fear. And if they didn't feel it, then, you know, I'd want to punish them. You know, just like really making sure people knew I was spiritual because I liked and I talked about punishment and fear so much. But then one day I read 1 John 4, 18, which says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And then I was like, oh, no, maybe I've gotten this whole thing wrong. I've been wanting my preacher and my church and my God to come down hard on me because I thought this thing was about punishment. But that has nothing to do with love. In fact, it's the complete opposite of what Jesus seemed to be doing. It's the complete opposite of what John seems to be writing about there in John chapter 4. And isn't it so great to live in love and talk about love and not be manipulated by fear? Isn't it so great to know that all of us are already accepted? Isn't it great I'm a part of a faith community where we encourage each other to love even though we have doubts? And then you let that last sentence like hang there. You let it hang as long as you can. And you you wait for them to say something like, wow, wow, that's really interesting. But probably they'll go, wait, you do believe in hell, right? Because when religious people don't have anything else to say, they usually turn to the topic of hell. And you go, I believe in God. Because to you it seems weird to say, I believe in hell, like it's a manifesto or something. I say the Apostles' Creed and then follow it up with a good faith-building statement like, I believe in hell. Yes, hell is what I believe. My hope is built on nothing less. My hope is in hell. (laughs) You don't say all this to the person because you know they're probably not ready for that level of sarcasm yet. So you you just let it hang with, you know what, I believe in God and love. And I do know this, I love you. And then there's more space. They're not saying anything because they're trying to think of a big Bible verse to crush your faith and love. And you're thinking to yourself while you're on the phone, no, 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 no. Are they going to remember a verse and launch back into this whole thing? Because you know you don't have enough Bible verses in your arsenal to fight with them. And so you mentally prepare yourself. And as you do, you just have this warm sense of gratitude come over you. Because you're realizing there in that moment that you're becoming less and less attached to what this one particular person or group of people think about you. 
And then you remember that time years ago when you read that little business book, Who Moved My Cheese? And you'll never forget the studies that the scientists did on mice. It was a simple study, but they would place some cheese at the end of a tunnel. The mice would get up each morning, go to the end of the tunnel, and find their food and eat. One day, a mouse gets up, and the cheese at the end of the tunnel has been moved. He goes there, and he finds nothing, and he goes hungry all day. The next day, he gets up, and he goes to that spot again. Again, nothing. So he stops looking for the cheese in that old place, and he starts foraging around the rest of the cage. And lo and behold, he finds another tunnel that leads him somewhere else where he does find the cheese. Because this is what mice do. When the cheese has been moved, they go somewhere else. But this isn't what humans do. When the cheese has been moved, the human gets up the second day and the third day and the fourth and a thousand other days after that. And they still go back to that old place where the cheese used to be, expecting to find the cheese. The mouse has it figured out by day two and three, but it took you years to figure out that the love or the affection or the validation the person on the, on the other end of the phone has been placing at the end of the tunnel when you were younger, well, it just keeps getting moved. The cheese has been moved. And you remember now how you realized that you can make a choice just like that mouse you can realize that cheese has been moved. You don't have to keep going down to the end of the tunnel, repeating the same old patterns in a ridiculous attempt to get validation from that other person. So you're on the phone in that moment, in the pause, just with a sense of gratitude, thanking God that no matter what happens, if that person winds up not agreeing with you or not affirming you that it's genuinely okay, it's genuinely going to be okay because you know your self-worth. You know that you're loved. You know God is for you, so it really doesn't matter who's against you. And though you have massive doubts about everything in life, you refuse to doubt God's love. And you say to yourself, like Job said, Though God slays me, I will not stop trusting. Of course, then you think, oh, Job, I think your theology might be a little bit off because God doesn't slay people. But then you snap out of your theological rabbit trail and you focus on the important part of the verse, and that is that you, in fact, may die, but you will do so knowing that God is still with you. Because honestly, a God who's so capricious that he'd just turn his back on you because you had doubts or because you changed your minds about a few things, honestly, what kind of God is that? That sounds like something humans do. And you know God is, at the very least, greater than humans. So yes, you sit there in that pause and you're grateful to know that however that person responds, they're no longer the suppliers of your cheese. Yeah, the cheese has been moved. You're free. You're accepted. And that's pretty much your entire theology. Jesus moved, you're free, you're accepted, and God is bigger than humans. And finally, the loved one relents for the time being. And they say on the other end of the phone, well, I love you too. And then you say goodbye and you rush to end the call before they can weaponize any more Bible verses. And you sit in the car for a minute outside your apartment under the covered parking spot. Because this conversation started with you coming home from work in your car. And when you got home, you just stayed there, like for two hours. And you're exhausted and frustrated. And you say to yourself, why can't they just accept me? 
As you say this, you lean forward to bang your head against a steering wheel, but then you accidentally honk the horn. A squirrel from the little tree straight in front of you is startled. It jumps and twitches and stares at you wide-eyed while eating an acorn, and you stare back. Because this is what your life has been reduced to, staring down squirrels in parking lots at dusk. But you really do care about the whole thing, not the squirrel necessarily, but the person you've been talking with. So you sit with it in the quiet for a moment, and you pray. God doesn't answer the prayer, but you do have this thought. What if I think of it from their point of view? And I don't know, man, something happens to you. Your loved one or mentor or whatever, whoever it was on the other end of the phone, you start to think about how they've known you since you were little. Like they've helped you walk or talk or use a spoon or drive a car or throw a ball or learn things, whatever it is. They saw the potential in you in class or at that retreat or within that conversation, and they taught you things. They loved you, and they believed in you. And you think about how it was probably fun for them because they believed in you. But the truth is, it was also, as a younger person being in their life, it was also something that really validated them, that they could pour themselves into That you were someone that soaked up what they were teaching, giving, modeling, or saying, that made them feel, well, it made them feel great. And you try to imagine what it was like for them and what it's like for them now. And you realize, oh, that was a huge part of their life. And they probably never knew it was a huge part of their life until you started coming up with your own ideas. And especially when it was ideas about God. I mean, it was one thing when you said you wanted to go to the mountains instead of the beach for vacation. Or like it was one thing when you decided to go to K-State and not KU. It was one thing when they realized that, no, you didn't always vote the same way. But this, like this is God. This is the big dance, the final countdown, the ultimate heaven or hell. And that your views are changing Well, you realize it does at least two things. A, it makes them miss the good old days when they were the most or one of the most important persons in the world. It's just a lonely thing, that's all. And you sense their loneliness and you sense their humanity. And as you soften a bit, you begin to realize that this whole thing, this whole conversation that you've been having with them has been stirring up their own doubts. And no one is more anxious than a religious person who's been told their entire life not to doubt, to build their life upon the rock of certainty, and who now has those doubts being freshly stirred. And you consider that really they're just dealing with their own humanity, that's all. It's probably not because they're bad or mean or angry. It's just that the way they've coped all these years is now being called into question by your questions. The way they've gotten to certainty all these years is now being broken down a bit by the way that you're processing life. And what they need, what they need the most, you realize in that moment, it's just grace. (laughs) You feel the thought coming over you, and then you're like, no, no, it can't be. You tell yourself in no uncertain terms, please do not think what you're getting ready to think. But it's too late, because you realize what they need the most is the thing you need the most, 
unconditional acceptance. And then you get a wild look in your eye for a moment. You know, you're holding your hands up in the air as if connecting the dots. And you go, let's see, the thing they need is the thing I need. And so if I give it away, I may get it in return. And then there's this shot of energy that goes through your body. It's a totally out of control feeling because you have no guarantee that this will ever work. And it just feels crazy for a moment. And you think, wait, I have to give it to them? You ball up your hand in a fist for a moment and you think, they're the ones who should be giving it to me. Then you fall back into your seat. You relax your hand, your body, your will, and you think, oh yeah, this is what it means to be a Jesus follower. It's to see love everywhere, everywhere, even with those you struggle with the most. And you bow your head and you think of that line from St. John of the Cross. The mission is to put love where there is no love. And you say to yourself, or pray, because you really don't know the difference half the time. You say to yourself, I got to do this. The mission is to put love here where there is no love. And then in that moment, you sense a kind of holiness enveloping you. Something's in the car with you. It's really beautiful. You think about your resolve to love this person. You resolve to love all people and how hard it is and how it's going to kill you to do this thing, to give your life away to this person, but not lose yourself to this person. It's really a holy moment. And then you think of Henry Cloud's Boundaries book, because whatever you do, you know you're not going to let the person abuse you. But there is a line there between abuse and not being in control of the other person that you know that the spirit of love is asking you to live in. So you just want to live there. And then you think, well, i got to brush up on my boundaries so I can be healthy as I do all this. So you pull out your phone and you say, hey, Siri, remind me to go to the Boundaries website tomorrow. And Siri says, okay, I found 18 websites that have to do with horses wearing Chacos. And then you're like, Siri, you're an idiot. And Siri starts to respond, but you shut the phone off. You tap at it with your finger, which feels so anemic. And then you remember the old days when you used to be able to slam the phone down on the receiver. That felt really good. It felt right to feel the plastic smash down on the other plastic. It had the effect of like a curse word. But trying to slam an iPhone with your index finger, it's so unrewarding. And then the whole spiritual holy thing that you had felt just moments before, now it's completely gone. But as you get out of the car and close the door, you laugh at yourself and life and the squirrel and the dark, and you know that you have found a measure of conviction. You're not going to call your loved one back right at that moment, but you know you have found something in Jesus to help you with all of this. And then that night, Lying in bed, you pray and you ask God to help you with your doubts and with the doubts of your loved ones and with the fact that you doubt loving your loved ones will ever help anything. You lay there for a moment. God doesn't answer your prayer, but you do pull out your Bible on the nightstand and you turn to Matthew 28. It's the ending of the story of Jesus's life here on earth. It's that climactic part where all the believers go out on a hillside and they watch Jesus ascend into the heavenly dimension. Like you've seen this on the films before, attempting to portray it. The music is building, the clouds are billowing. It's a beautiful day. Like you've never seen this scene depicted in a cloudy, rainy day. No, it's always the most impressive, inspiring scene. 
and Jesus has given them everything they need. And then you read in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What? Like a record scratch in the middle of the story. What do you mean they doubted? They saw he had risen. They knew that he was alive. And you're like, this is crazy. As you snap the book shut and you yank on the chain of your lamp emphatically. And you think, these people saw everything I would ever want to see. They experienced it all with Jesus. They saw him killed and then resurrected. You would have thought that at that point, he would have done away with all their doubts. But no, some still doubted. And then you have this great thought. If the people who were there when Jesus ascended doubted, if Thomas, one of the disciples, doubted, I'm pretty sure it's okay for me to doubt too. And you sit back up and you yank the light chain to turn the light back on and you scribble the thought down on a receipt laying by your bed on the floor. If Tom doubted, if people saw Jesus alive doubted, I get to. And you yank the chain again and you lay down in the dark and you're like, Doubting is fine. In fact, doubting is good. It admits, it admits I'm not in control. And it's why I have faith. And you think to yourself, why do I always forget that? And then you're like, wait a minute. You know what I doubt? I doubt doubt. And now you're talking out loud. You have no idea who you're talking to. But you say, that's right. I doubt you doubt. And you say, look, I'm not falling for your game any longer, mister. I know I can't beat you by reading another book or memorizing another verse or whatever. I I see it now. It's really just feeding you. So here's the thing. I'm not going to try to beat you to get rid of you. You know what? I'm thankful for you. You've probably helped me lots of times. But honestly, I doubt you care about me that much. You're so selfish. So yes, yes, you're welcome. Be a part of my life. I mean, you're welcome to hang out but you don't get to control anything. And then you stop talking out loud and you roll over defiantly and you pull the covers up as if doubt cares the posture you assume or the positioning of the covers as you try to go to sleep. But you can't go to sleep because who has ever fallen asleep in a defiant mood? (laughs) It's a completely wrong emotion. So you get up and you make a gluten-free grilled cheese and you read a book until you fall asleep. You wake up the next morning, not necessarily rested, but you do know you're free and you go to work and you give love away and people notice that you're stronger somehow and you meet up with your family and well, nothing changes. Nothing changes on the outside, but on the inside, the interior of who you are is able to carry all the outside better and better and it gives you room to give love away and to doubt and to fail but to grow in love, because that's the point, the goal, the idea, the whole point is love. Gracias. Thanks for hanging out with me today. 
I hope that you have a great week and you keep giving love away. It's not always easy. Sometimes you got to deal with boundaries because I'm not suggesting you should put yourself in manipulative or abusive situations. So you got to work through some of that. Get a trusted friend around you if you need to talk through that. But meanwhile, commit to love. Commit to seeing the humanity in everyone. Commit to seeing that God creates everyone in the divine embrace. The religious people keep telling you that you're a problem to be fixed, that you're broken, that you're sinful. And it is true that you do have issues, and I have issues. But in the end, I'm going to stick with that old phrase. How's it go? I'd rather be excluded for who I include than included for who I exclude. I think that sounds like Jesus. All right, peace.